this is Tom Lee, Editor-in-Chief for NEGM Catalyst, and we're talking today with Amy Compton-Phillips, uh, the Executive Vice President and Chief Clinical Officer at Providence, the Seattle-based delivery system with 51 hospitals and more than 800 clinics providing care up and down the West Coast and other areas as well. Amy has been one of the leaders of NEGM Catalyst from its very start, and you've probably seen her on CNN and other news shows as the COVID-19 pandemic's first U.S. surge hit Washington. She's been helping lead Providence's response, and I think it's fair to say that she and Providence have done a remarkable job, not just in caring for patients, but in helping the rest of the country understand what's happening. It's not an exaggeration to say nothing will be the same again, including Providence and including Amy's job. We're here today to talk about how COVID has changed the role that physician leaders are playing in their organizations. So first, Amy, let me ask for a short, high-level answer to a question that I know could take days to answer. How's it going? Yeah, well, what a great question there, Tom. Um, it's actually going reasonably well. You know, we have had um, uh, now in the hospital, we have about 300 COVID patients. We're down from about 900 COVID patients at our peak over the summer. Um, and we've been waxing and waning, uh, taking care of patients who are affected by the pandemic. But at the same time, we're actually back to taking care of the rest of the community. Um, initially during the pandemic, during the shelter at home orders, um, our hospital volumes went way down, and which was a problem because it wasn't just elective surgeries, it was also people with heart attacks and strokes staying home, right? So now we're actually almost back to pre-pandemic volumes, um, including doing elective surgeries and including taking care of people now, again, with their acute issues. Um, and so we are, we are uh, getting back into the nimble area of being able to care for both and, um, patients who are affected by COVID, by SARS-CoV-2 virus, as well as all the other health conditions that plague us on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, that's great to hear. Now, I know that from the very start, you and your CEO, Rod Hockman, were very tuned in to how Providence's care delivery was being altered by COVID and Providence itself was being altered by COVID. So, Focusing on physicians in roles like yours, chief clinical officers, chief medical officers, can you say something about how you and doctors like you fit in senior teams before COVID and then what happened during the crisis? Sure. Well, you know, the crisis um, being a pandemic, a medical issue, was very different than a crisis like a hurricane or um, a, a wildfire. Um, other other types of ones that we have dealt with um, a little too often here in in the past few years. Um, in that, in a hurricane and a wildfire, you start with how are we going to manage logistics and where do we move the patients, right? In the pandemic, it's how are we going to do the medical care of a brand new disease? And oh, by the way, doctor, what do we do to prevent it from spreading to other people? And oh, by the way, doctor, what do you think is going to happen with the number of people infected if this is um, continued to be uh, uh, the exponential growth that we know is a potential? And so it was very much a medical crisis. And because it was a medical crisis and not an operational conundrum, um, the operators stood back and, and had people in my role, chief clinical officers, chief medical officers, um, infection preventionists, step up and lead. And, and then they 
saw saw that they, they demonst- we demonstrated that we could lead and we did know how to lead and that often um, you know there's this kind of of concept that we need to be professionally managed um, but but clinical leadership is essential particularly when the problem is a clinical problem so I think it was actually a great moment for chief medical officers to demonstrate their worth well uh, my next question is, is about how it changed how the senior team worked and how you interacted uh, with other senior managers. Uh, I'm thinking now of a, a cute story from that Barkley Burden, the CEO of Texas Health Resources, uh, told at an NEGM Catalyst meeting when I was interviewing him and we were talking about that terrible time when two of their nurses uh, at Texas Health Resources got infected with Ebola, and they also uh, were, were receiving terrible national publicity because uh, the initial patient with Ebola had been seen in the emergency department and sent home. Uh, and basically, their, hosp- their big hospital was shut down. No surgery, no one coming to the ED, no one coming for ambulatory care. And I asked Barkley what he was hearing from his CFO uh, during that period, and Barkley said, actually, the CFO didn't say anything to him for a couple of weeks. And I AFO was sitting in a corner, stunned into catatonic silence, rocking back and forth in his chair. And Barkley said, no, uh, the CFO knew that the highest priority at that time was doing the clinical right thing for patients and for staff. And it sounds like you went through that same process at Providence and elsewhere during the COVID surge. Um, Did the dynamics, is that how the dynamics uh, played out with your CFO, your COO, and and others on the senior team? Yeah, absolutely everybody knew they had a role. And the amazing thing is, you know, normally one of the critical things in a crisis is to ensure everybody knows exactly what they're doing and that everybody knows that each other is doing the right thing. I think we had we do have an incredibly skilled leadership team and that we didn't even have to make it clear. So as we were dealing with the, all right, how are we going to take care of the next patient and the next patient and how are we going to start thinking about taking care of people in a virtual way because we're not going to be able to manage the rush otherwise, right? So we were thinking very much about these clinical questions. Our CFO was going, we have to maintain liquidity because we're going to shut down and so let's get lines of credit. And um, the my favorite phrase that he used um, is how do we not tap into the portfolio expecting the stock market collapse to come? So his his mantra was don't in the middle of a pandemic, don't touch your face, don't touch your portfolio, let's get cash elsewhere. So, <laughs> so you know, he was he was thinking ahead. Our operators were thinking about, okay, and our and our supply chain people were going, Okay, if this gets bad, we better order every every bit of supply we can right now and how do we secure testing capacity right so so everybody started going the worst case scenario let's plan let's go did you meet as a team face to face or was it all virtual we went virtual pretty early on and again it was because we were um, at the leading edge of the of the pandemic here in, in the US um, and we started doing a couple different things. One is we had a COVID uh, call every morning at 7.30, which we started in January um, before we even had the first U.S. case. We were doing it once a week among all the clinicians in the what-if planning. Um, as soon as the first patient hit, we went up to every 
you know, three times a week. As soon as we started getting more, it went up to daily. So we had we had a daily half an hour huddle, 7:30 every morning, with um, clinical and operations and supply chain and IT and and finance, everybody in between, um, with about 350 attendees um, that across all of our geographies, making sure that we were all in touch and knowing what was going on. And then we, of course, had our you know incident command at each facility. We had um, uh, a regional operations uh, team met every every weekday then for another couple hours to coordinate but that key touch point communication was just that half an hour um, daily huddle seven days a week when things were bad and we're now down to twice a week but it still keeps us connected and makes sure we're we're all working in coordination with each other is it still all virtual or have you started doing any face-to-face it is it is um, to do the cross um, entire organization, which as you mentioned, you know, it extends from Alaska down to California and as far east as Texas. That's all virtual. The incident command center at any one hospital or in any one office where they're actually seeing patients and so they're working there in person, they have those in person, but that's because they're in the buildings because you can't render care directly, you know, particularly hospital-based care um, uh, unless you're doing hospital at home. <laughs> so I better be careful about what I say you can't do. Um, but, but for, for our locations where they are caring for patients in person, they meet in person. Now, are there issues that you're working on now that weren't in your role or weren't in your on your radar screen as one of your top priorities at the beginning of the year? Well, um, I don't know that we have any that weren't priorities, but there's some that have certainly accelerated. Um, so, you know, obviously everybody, telehealth has, has dramatically accelerated. Um, and so being able to move knowledge, not people, is kind of one of the, the critical aspects for us moving forward. Um, another one, and, and part of that, by the way, is hospital at home. And so that so it's not just telehealth, you know, individual patients um, contacting docs, but it's physician-to-physician support. Um, one area that that was on our docket but got dramatically accelerated was our ability to do um, coordinated across our entire footprint clinical studies. Um, So we have research that had typically been centered around about five of our major large facilities that had affiliated um, research labs. And we've been able now to stand up several studies that have gone live at over 40 facilities with PIs at different facilities. And so being able to do large distributed research projects, um, some of which is clinical, some of which is health services research, but still large distributed research projects is something that we had on the timeline for far into the future, but but now we're doing it live. So I think um, just our ability to act as a system, as one, has been dramatically accelerated, which should make us faster at adopting, spreading, and scaling innovations across the board. Well, you certainly contributed some valuable research, you know, in those very early days in particular. Uh, well, let me close by bringing up the article that you wrote on platforming in the first issue of, uh, of our journal, NEJM Catalyst uh, Innovations in Healthcare Delivery. Uh, in January of this year. Uh, You wrote that, of course, before COVID uh, was on anyone's radar screen. And when you think about that concept of, you know, providence as a platform for meeting the needs 
uh, for for pa- for patients, just the way as Amazon's a platform from that, that can meet many of the shopping needs uh, of uh, consumers out there. Uh, has the last several months altered any of your thinking about this, or led to an emphasis on certain themes, or uh, or, or made it more or less prominent in your organization's thinking? Um, I think it has had us double down on the model. So in in the model of being able to serve as a platform, you know, we have this large-scale change infrastructure of vision, vision, trust, data, capacity, and alignment. Um, And in COVID, the the vision was very clear, survive COVID, right? Like get get through COVID. Um, And so everybody everybody knew exactly where we were going. We were trying to get to the other side of the pandemic. Trust, we had to all work together and trust that each other was doing their own job and not try to try to manage it, but allow it to happen. Um, data, we built an amazing data architecture that has allowed us to have um, not only insight into what the outcomes are that we're seeing, but also predictive analytics. And now we can see with pretty good fidelity about two weeks into the future of what's coming. Capacity, we um, we were very creative in, in creating capacity, and now that capacity generation is going to serve us well into the future. And alignment has been really essential for us to be able to um, have flex people into the roles that we need for us to be able to care in a new way. So I think that that platforming article, I'm, I'm really glad we had that model before COVID hit because it allowed us to go from zero to 60 very rapidly when we needed it. Well, it's a fine article, and for listeners or readers who might have missed it, I'd encourage you to uh, go back and check it out. Uh, it's a great set of thoughts from someone who I consider one of uh, the great thinkers in healthcare today, as well as a, uh, as a pretty good doer as well. Uh, so thanks for this progress report, Amy, and I think the, ch- the trends that you're talking about are big and important, and I am sure that we will be checking in with you and goes by. Uh, for updates on what you're experiencing and what you're thinking. Thank you so much, Tom. My pleasure.